0: Amen. Thank you, Grant. Some of you have already asked why I'm wearing my UCLA shirt this morning. It's because college football started yesterday. And the best time to fly your colors is when your team is undefeated. That may not last long, so now's the time. Well, every once in a while, we come to a passage of Scripture that is directly connected to a really important figure in church history. Years ago, when we started in our study of Romans, you may recall that when we were in chapter 1, we looked at Romans one seventeen, which was instrumental in the life of Martin Luther. And this morning, we come to the single most important passage in the conversion of a man named Augustine, the man who was arguably the most influential theologian in the first 1,500 years of the church. If you don't know his story, Augustine was raised in a small town in North Africa, in a place called Hippo. It's modern-day Algeria today. And he was raised by a spiritually mixed family. His dad was was a pagan, and his mom, Monica, was a devout Christian who raised Augustine to know the Lord and to serve him. But in his early adult years, Augustine completely pushed all of that training from his childhood away. And he chose to live the life of a pagan, especially in his university days. So he took on a a mistress and he threw himself into the study of philosophy. And he engaged in as much debauchery as he could possibly pack into his life. But he was a brilliant young scholar, and it was his intellectual promise that got him an appointment as a professor of rhetoric in Milan, Italy, at the time one of the most important intellectual centers of the Roman Empire. But while he was in Milan, by God's sovereignty, he fell under the influence of a very famous bishop by the name of Ambrose. And Ambrose convinced Augustine to begin to read the Bible again. But as he read the scriptures for a second time later in life, there was a stumbling block to all that he was studying. He knew from his mother's instruction that surrendering to Christ would mean this radical break... From this life of debauchery that he had chosen, that he would have to make a, a serious switch from, from this, this life of pleasure that he was seeking to a life without that pleasure. And frankly, he wasn't sure that he was ready to do that. He really wasn't sure he could live what he understood at the time to be the Christian life. Now, that doesn't mean he wasn't convinced by the truth of the gospel message. It appears that he was but it was those pesky obligations that he, he saw in the so-called Christian life that caused him to hesitate to surrender to Jesus for many years. And then one day in the year 386, Augustine was in the garden of the house that he was staying in, and he was struggling with this decision. On the one hand, I understand the truth of the gospel. and On the other hand, I don't want to give up my lifestyle. And in his later autobiography, which he calls Confessions, this is how he described the torment that he was going through. He says, I tore my hair and hammered my forehead with my fists. I locked my fingers and hugged my knees. Worldly pleasure seemed to beckon me. Are you going to dismiss us? From this moment on, we'll never be with you again. And you'll never again be allowed to do this thing or that Forevermore. And so I flung myself beneath a fig tree and I gave way to tears. I felt that I was still captive to my sins. And in my misery, I kept crying, how long should I go on saying tomorrow, tomorrow? And then I heard the sing-song voice of a child in a nearby house. Whether it was the voice of a boy or a girl, I cannot say. But again and again, it repeated this refrain, take up and read, take up and read. And Augustine was startled because in all of his knowledge of, of children's songs and children's games, he'd never heard that refrain, take up and read. So he interpreted that as God instructing him to go back to his scroll, his scriptures, and to read again. And So he went back into the house and he found his copy of the scriptures and he did what we tell people never to do, but God is sovereign. He just opened it up and at random looked at a verse. And his eyes fell on Romans 13, 13 and 14 that says, This, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity or sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And later he wrote this, he said, I never, I neither wished, nor needed to read any further. With those last words of that last sentence, it was this. It was as if a light of relief from all anxiety had flooded into my heart, and all the shadows of doubt were dispelled. And with that, this brilliant philosopher, who, by the way, is still studying in secular universities today for his philosophical works, but later this brilliant theologian was brought to saving faith in Christ, being shown from Romans 13 that this This new way of life that God commands is the only consistent, reasonable response of a sinner saved by grace. And suddenly that life that was so intimidating to Augustine was now appealing to him because he believed he could live it in the strength and power of Jesus Christ himself. He heard the promise that Jesus said, I will strengthen you and give you power for this way of Christian living. Grab your Bibles. If you haven't turned there already, let's go to Romans 13 and we'll read this passage. In fact, let's back up to verse 8. We'll start reading where we studied uh, last Sunday so we get the the full flow and context. Romans 13, beginning in verse 8. Paul says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it's summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now look at verse 11. Do this knowing the time, that it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Now that... Those last four verses are are filled with imperatives, filled with things that God is commanding us to do. But before we just jump into them and start laying them out, it's important for us to see in this passage the motivation, the motivation, the reason for why we should obey these commands. Look again at the beginning of verse 11 and see this phrase, knowing the time. Underline it, highlight it, knowing the time. Friends, the key word for this morning is urgency urgency way back in the first century think about this as Paul is writing to the Roman church he was already warning believers to take a look around and to understand the time that they lived in and to have a sense of urgency in that period of time in that era related to God's mission for them he wanted them to know the time now if Paul wanted Christians to do that 20 centuries ago how much more should you and I be aware of the time today and recognize the urgency of the mission and the calling that we have. Now, many scholars have looked at this passage, and they've speculated. They say, well, it looks to us like Paul and and probably the other apostles, they believed that Jesus was going to be coming back in their lifetimes. And that's possibly true, by the way. And why not? They lived in very extreme times under Roman authority, a day when things were very bleak for the church. So it's possible that they believed that. But here's the thing about Paul and the apostles, they didn't have absolute clarity on the future of all things, especially related to the timing of Christ's return. They didn't have that full clarity. Even as they were writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they didn't know all things. So it's possible they believed that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. But this much we can say today in 2019, and it's been true in every generation since the resurrection, that we are in the last days. In Paul's day, And today, we are in the last days. This is the final era of life on this planet. So know the time. This is the last extended hour of human history before the age of righteousness is ushered in when the king returns. These are the last days. Now, we know it is the new covenant age or the church age, and it's a period of time, according to what Paul's told us in Romans 11, That will last only long enough for the full number of God's chosen Gentiles to come into the kingdom. By the way, that could be today. That's how long it's going to last. And then the end of all things will commence. Remember what Jesus said. The first time he came, he, he came what? Not to condemn the world, but to save it, right? But when he comes back, again, maybe today, it'll look very, very different. For the text says that he will come with a winnowing fork in his hand to clear thoroughly his threshing floor and he will gather his chosen wheat into the barn and with the chaff what? he will cast it outside where it will be burned up with an unquenchable fire that's what Jesus is coming back with so Paul says to you and I today know the time be aware of the age that you live in realize that the time is short and that urgency is required make sense? sense? Now, I don't know about you, but it feels to me like people today, even unbelievers, even the most pagan of people, are beginning to become aware that human history is is headed towards some type of a climax. There seems to be like a, a dread building in society, a certain hopelessness that we can no longer control what's going on around us. Think for a moment about the hysteria, the absolute hysteria around climate change today. I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? Prominent politicians are now claiming on national TV that we have less than 12 years to fix this problem or we and the planet are doomed. With a straight face, they're making those predictions. And of course the climate's changing. It's always changed, right? It's always gone through cycles. We know this to be true. But now things have reached an irrational fever pitch and everybody's screaming, "Who, who can fix this? Well, government can. They can't run the DMV, (laughs) and they're going to fix climate change, but people are screaming about it, right? And we know, as believers, we know this is ridiculous, but this is what's happening in our world. We know that any government policy that claims to be able to get out there and fix climate change is really about what? It's about power and control. It's about taking hold of the American economy, and so while you and I who know the Lord, we can, we can sit here this morning. We can rest in God's goodness. We can rest in his sovereignty. We can rest knowing that God is completely in control of the planet and our lives. Understand that the unbelieving world out there is continuing to wander blindly through darkness. Lashing out at each other as they see this climax coming. This hopelessness that they're experiencing. They, they, they gnash their teeth. In growing hatred and cruelty these days, they they exhibit contempt for order and authority. The spirit of selfishness and arrogance seems to be growing worse every day. And by the way, none of that's to be should be surprising to us. The scriptures have told us; they've warned us about this from the very beginning. And aren't you as I sit here today? I am so grateful that we don't have to wonder what's going on out there because God has told us to expect it. By the way, notice in verse eleven the assumption. They're in the perfect tense of the verb, knowing the time. Paul's not leaving that up to chance. He says, as Christians, we do know the time. We're currently knowing the time. We know the era that we live in, we know it's the final chapter of human history. We know that we don't have to worry because we're children of light, we're not wandering in the darkness. And so we see what other people can't. We see that the days are evil, that life on this earth is fleeting and temporary, and that someday it's all gonna come to an end. And Jesus is gonna usher in perfect righteousness and justice. And unfortunately for many, also he's bringing fire and judgment and wrath. And so we know that we're obligated to make the most of every moment that we're given on the earth because souls hang in the balance, don't they? That's the mission we have to live out, to be out there right now, To to know the time, to have an urgency, to make disciples. And not only that, but to teach them all the things that God has commanded. So question, why here at Oak Hill do do we talk about two things? Being a student of human nature and being a student of the culture. So that we can know the times that we live in. It's important. Why do we integrate these things into our teaching? Why in community groups do we talk about the issues of the day? And the conflicts that we face as Christians. Why do we repetitively talk about, see what's happening out there, then pass it all through the grid of scripture so that you can interpret what's going on? These are important things. It's so that we can know the time. And it's so that we can remind ourselves of the urgency that we need to live in. It's really about you and I getting outside of this sort of daily grind that we live in, this this little bubble that we sort of build around ourselves to, to insulate us from what's going on around us. It's about seeing the big picture. That's what Paul's trying to say in this passage. Hey, Christian, step back for a second. I know you got lots of worries day to day. Step back, see the big picture. This is the final hour that we live in. And so as the clock ticks away, look out. Where's your harvest field? It's all around you, right? What are those people thinking? Unbelievers in your harvest field, what are they thinking? How are they handling all this this stress and the, the chaos that's going on around them? Why are they struggling with the things right now they're struggling with? Race relations, right? Gender confusion. The whole issue over sexual orientation and marriage. Why is our culture in the last 10 to 15 years going off in this crazy direction? Know the times. See what's going on around you. Why is hate on the rise? Why these mass shootings? Why this this sudden increase in the issue related to mental health? Why are we seeing high-profile so-called Christian leaders suddenly apostatizing and walking away from the church. Know the times. See what's going on around you. In the midst of all this, here's another big question. Where does the gospel fit in? Do we see openings for the gospel and what's happening around us? Man, if you don't see those, You're blind. They're everywhere because people in this culture right now are struggling. There's opportunities. And as people struggle, the question is, what answers do we have for them? And secondly, are we prepared to give them? Are our eyes open to the opportunities? Are we ready to give an answer for the hope that we have? Which leads to this important question, what are we spending our time doing right now? If we know the time, if we understand the urgency, if we know this is the last hour, how are you and I spending our time? Are we spending it on trivial things? Or are we spending it on things that matter? Friends, this one little phrase in verse 11, knowing the time is so chock full of meaning, I can't even tell you. So is it any surprise then that Paul, he sort of gets after the Roman believers here. He tells them in verses 11 and 12, hey, wake up. Look around. Look at the imagery in verse 12. He says, "The night is almost gone. That is a reference to the final age, the night. There's a finite amount of time assigned to it. Know that. It's a time of darkness, a time of night, but it will come to an end. And the day, he says, is near. What day? That's the moment when Christ, the light of the world, returns. You know, how many guys have ever this is a silly question. How many guys have ever been up early enough to see the sunrise? All right. Have you ever been like, you're looking out at the horizon and that first ray of sun comes up and it hits you in the eye and it almost blinds you? That's the return of Christ. The day is near and that first ray of sun is coming and the light of the world will come and it'll be something that we can't even imagine when he comes back. So what should we do? Paul says, wake up. Verse 11, look at it. It's already the hour, he writes. It's already the hour for you to wake up, awaken from your sleep. The intent of that word in the Greek, already, is now. Now is the time to wake up because you live in the last hour. Wake up. So where's your head at, Christian? Where is your focus these days? Are you immersed in the pleasures of the world? Or are you about the greater things that come from God? Are you on mission I think if Paul could walk in, he'd say, How many of you guys feel like right now you're spiritually drowsy and you need to wake up? You need that alarm clock to go off. This morning is the alarm clock. Romans 13 is the is the alarm clock. Awake from your spiritual drowsiness. That's what Paul's implying here. If we're not alert, we slip into a state of drowsiness. And when we get drowsy, what happens? We fail to see opportunities. God brings opportunities to us, but we're sleeping. We're sleepwalking through life, doing trivial things. When we get sleepy, we miss gospel opportunities. When we get sleepy, we miss temptations that we should be seeing before they come to us. We get so lost in our daily pursuit of comfort and happiness that our focus falls entirely on ourselves rather than on God and on loving others well. It's the daily grind, right? John Piper has said this, everything in this world that does not awaken in you more faith in Christ puts you to sleep. Interesting. Now, I'm not up here saying, you know, never stop and watch a movie. I'm not not saying that there's no room for that in your life, but what are the habits of your life? Do they lead towards trivial things or do they lead toward important things, eternal things? I don't know what it is for you. You know the Lord knows, but for every one of us this morning, including me, there are things in this world that make us spiritually drowsy. Would it, would it be smart of us, wise of us to stop and examine that? Maybe make a list of it, maybe take that to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, this is what I think makes me drowsy. Show me what I need to see. That'd be a really good thing. Maybe, it's, maybe technology is your, the thing that drives you to sleep, your iPhone. YouTube or Netflix or Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. I mean, there's a million things, right? Maybe that's what's making you drowsy. Maybe it's something bigger. Maybe it's the building of your career or it's the the accumulating of material wealth that's making you drowsy. Maybe it's as simple as self-reliance. This is the one I struggle with. What's making me drowsy is self-reliance, the fact that I can go through my week day by day, week by week, and trust in my own fortitude and strength and sometimes forget God completely. Makes you spiritually drowsy. Maybe it's as simple as habitual sin, something that has you in a cycle that you can't jump out of, and therefore you've completely cut yourself off from God and you are asleep. Paul says, Wake up. If Christ were to return tonight, would he declare you a faithful servant? I, I know you've heard that before, right? But it, 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 it's important. If he returned tonight, would he say, Well done? faithful servant, you were ready for your master. Jesus warned us in Matthew 24, be on alert, be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at a time you don't expect. And then Paul warns us in 1 Thessalonians 5, you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like what? A thief in the night. While they, those in the world, are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains, and they will not escape. But now listen to the language here and and compare it to what we read in Romans 13. But you, brothers and sisters, Christians, you're not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are sons of light and sons of the day. Remember the sun coming up, the rays hitting? You're sons of the daytime, not darkness. We're not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. And here's the best news of all. For those of us sitting here this morning that trust in Christ, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. Amen? So wake up. Now, before we leave verse 11, one more thing. If you have a New American Standard Bible, notice how it begins, do this, knowing the time. Other translations say besides this or or, and this, but I think the New American Standard has the right intent on Paul's part. He's connecting what he says here in verse 11 with what he wrote in verses 8 to 10 when he talked about loving your neighbor. So here's basically what he wants to say. One of the great motivations to love is understanding the time. One of our great motivations to love is understanding the time. I'm sure you know this already. We live in a love-starved world these days. Biblical love, that is, right? And as our culture continues to spiral down into the things we talked about, hate and cruelty and violence, the great demand in this age is love. Biblical love, true biblical love. And who has that love to give? Look around the room. Christ followers, we're the only ones that could give true biblical love, the ones who know God, the ones who are in Christ. We are God's resource in this world to give the love. That is the demand of this age. That's what people want to know more about. It's love that makes us stand out in this world because it's such a harsh and cruel place. It's our love that's going to make us stand out. That's why we took so much time last Sunday to talk about what it means to love our neighbor. That's what's going to make us stand out. Of course, that assumes that we're alert, that we're not sleeping, but we're loving. So, knowing the time, first of all, love well. What else does God want us to do in light of this era that we live in, according to our passage? The rest of the passage helps us. Here's how I would summarize what else God wants us to do Become who God has declared you to be. Okay? Let the indicative lead to the imperative. The indicative, the statement of who you are, let it lead to action. Become what God says you are His child, a child of the king. Know the time. Become who God has declared you to be. If you've trusted in Christ by faith alone and you've made him Lord of your life, God has declared you righteous in his sight positionally. Think about that. You're declared righteous in his sight positionally. Now Paul says, go out and make that practically true. How do we do that? Well, there's four ways that Paul talks about here in this passage. Number one is this. We've got to get rid of some things. Look at verse 12. The night's almost gone, the day is near, therefore, key word, right? When you see a therefore, here comes the reason. Therefore, because this day is near, let us lay aside or let us cast off the deeds of darkness. Once again, we see Paul using language, particular language. The present age is said to be night and the works of fallen mankind are said to be deeds of darkness. Is that not apt for our culture today? Do you not turn on the cable news and see nothing but darkness? I do. Believing that, this is the thing that blows your mind. The folks that you see sort of roiling around in society, unbelievers, they think they're progressive. They think they're enlightened. In reality, the lost people around us have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, but they're completely convinced of it. They're deceived by it. They have no understanding about things like the origin of the universe or the existence of their own soul or the source of morality and love. They are in complete darkness regarding the nature of mankind. They are still believing the absurd notion that man is basically good. You'll hear it all the time. They're in darkness. They have no conception of the purpose for their very lives other than to sort of accumulate material stuff and find pleasure. That's that's it like an animal instinct. And they're stumbling around without any knowledge concerning death and eternity. Talk to anybody and they'll say, well, of course we all end up in the happy place. It's astonishing, isn't it? They think they're so enlightened and so progressive, but they've exchanged the truth of Scripture for this lie and they have bought it hook, line, and sinker. That's what's happening around you. So what are these deeds of darkness? Well, Paul gives us some examples here, three couplets, First of all, he says carousing and drunkenness. This is what the world does. The Greek word for carousing there refers specifically to nocturnal activities, stuff we do at night. In Greek literature, we see it used to describe the type of late-night parties that involve overfeasting and over-drinking and riotous behavior. Ask either one of my kids. I've, I've told them a million times, nothing good happens after midnight. Dads? Dads? Amen. Nothing good. No, and I know that's a generalization, but the principle is generally true. The later that you're out into the wee hours of the morning, the more likely you're going to encounter people who have overindulged in some way and whose inhibitions have been lowered. Am I right? Ask a law enforcement officer. It's true. And that can be a recipe for all kinds of problems carousing and drunkenness. Where does that lead? Often to the, the second group of things here, sexual promiscuity and sensuality or lust. That's what happens. And finally not in strife or quarreling or jealousy. Now those last two, they feel like they're out of place. The first four seem like really big ones, right? But these last two seem sort of, ah, what's the big deal? A little bit of quarreling, a little bit of jealousy. Here's why they're a big deal to God, because they violate what we talked about last Sunday. They violate the second greatest commandment, to love others as you love yourself. Harboring jealousy is utterly self-focused, isn't it? And so it's a failure to love. And being quarrelsome means that you're constantly fighting to get your own way. Again, it's a failure to love others as you love yourself. So, this is obviously just a list of six things. It's not designed to be a comprehensive list of all sinful behaviors, but they represent what you're going to find out there in the world. Deeds of darkness. These are things that lost people engage in without even a hesitation, without questioning, without guilt, without shame, without feeling any sense of having to repent. Listen, they are the natural inclinations of natural people. But that's not us. Understand that distinction. We're not natural, we're now supernatural. True? These are the natural inclinations of natural people, but they are not appropriate for people whose natures have been transformed by the living God and not for people who are awake, who know the time and know the urgency of the hour. Okay, second thing we have to do to become who God has declared us to be. There it is. Knowing the time, we have to engage in the spiritual battle that's going on all around us. Again, if you are sleepwalking through life, you are not even aware that there's a spiritual battle. But there is. Now, it's interesting. If Paul were to use traditional parallelism in the way he writes, look at verse 12. He says, lay aside the deeds of darkness. If he were writing traditionally, he would say, and put on the deeds of light. But he doesn't say deeds of light, does he? What does he say? Put on the armor of light. And really, the Greek word there is referring to weaponry. So cast aside these deeds of darkness and pick up your spiritual weapons, people. You can't sleepwalk through your daily life and expect to win the battle. Pick up your weapons. The point here is is to warn us that we're in a war every day. In the micro sense, we're at war with our flesh, right? Temptation is coming After us all the time, but there's a bigger picture, a macro sense in terms of us being at war. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 6. Our struggle is not against just flesh and blood, is it? It's against what? The forces of darkness that operate in the heavenly realms. Therefore, Paul says, take up the full armor of God. Why? So that you can resist those forces and in the end to stand firm. But if you don't pick them up, you're gonna get beat, you're gonna get knocked around. And you're going to fall all over the place if you're sleepwalking. It's easy to forget this because this battle is unseen. But we'd better be alert. And we'd better know the enemy's schemes. And maybe most importantly, we'd better understand our own vulnerabilities. Where are our defenses weakest? Because you know that's where the enemy's going to attack. We've got to know these things. Okay, third and fourth things that we have to do are found in verse 14. Look at it. Verse 14, but put on or clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision. In other words, don't make plans for the flesh in regard to its lusts. So we have both a positive and a negative imperative here. Let's start with the negative. The first thing that we have to observe here is that in life, we battle the flesh and the temptations the world throws at us. And there's there's generally two categories of sin, two things to think about. There's the type of sin that seems to come upon us very suddenly. You know what I'm talking about? It's usually sparked by something external that comes our way, a person or or a circumstance or something that comes our way. And suddenly, you know, we're walking through our day. Listen, none of us wakes up in the morning and goes, boy, I want to have a big day of sinning today. Man, I'm committed to get out there and sin as much as possible. As believers, we wake up committed to the opposite, right? We, we want to walk in the spirit today. Lord, we want to please you. And we're going through our day and things are going well. And all of a sudden, boom, something hits us. Someone, something hits us. And we, we, just, we just, something flies out of our mouth. And we're like, what just happened? I mean, I, I dealt with this this week. God has this, inc- God's sense of humor kills me. He has this incredible way of showing me something in my life that I'm about to preach on. So uh, it was Thursday. I was coming back. I, I was working on my sermon. I had been to a couple meetings. Uh, I was with Grant and I was with Adam. I'm driving back to my home office and I'm on the five coming north towards Castaic and there are big rig trucks everywhere. Can you feel me, Castaic people? And they're taking up three of the four lanes and they're slowing me down. And it's causing every car to break. And I am on my schedule. (laughs) Do not get in the way of my schedule. And I am furious in my car. I mean, I'm thinking terrible things about these truck drivers. I I wouldn't even share any more detail. I'm like, what is going on? And by the time I got off at Lake Hughes, the spirit just hit me like, what is wrong with you? Why did you get so agitated by that? And I had to spend the next two minutes driving to my house just repenting, like, I'm such a failure, Lord. Does anybody anybody have these experiences? Something just suddenly comes at you and you're like, what, what was that? Well, listen, here's the thing. that that anger, that that desire to control things and to manage my life in a comfortable way, all of those things are, Those are all sort of sin residue in my heart, lying dormant. And and while I didn't plan for those things to come out, it was the external circumstances that hit me that caused me to just lose it. And, And so it's right what Jesus said, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Sin comes flooding out. And so I had to do some heart work that day to say, Lord, okay, you've forgiven me. I mean, you've already covered it by your blood, but I want to know why that's going on in my life. To do intentional heart work, Lord, show me what's going on. So this is for all of us. We're all going to sin in this way, but what we have to, we can't just say, well, oh well. We need to say, Lord, I want to do some heart work on this. I want to know what's going on. Show me what's, search my heart, the scripture says, right? Search my heart and show me why I'm doing these things. And maybe, maybe I need to get with a disciple or a counselor and, and, and have them help me see some things, identify some of that sin residue that remains in me. Those are important things. Now, that's not the type of sin that Paul... I'm just, I'm just mentioning that to you because that's common to all of us. The type of sin that Paul is talking about here is a little bit different. In verse 14, he says, we make provision for sin." This is when we actually plan to sin. We premeditate it. This hurts, doesn't it? For example, we devise a strategy to get out of a tough spot or a difficult conversation. So we create a, an elaborate lie to cover ourselves. It takes planning to do that. It takes thought. We're premeditating our sin or We we try to figure out the next day the perfect timing when my roommate leaves, I can jump on the computer and put my eyes on something that I shouldn't be looking at. We plan that out. And Paul says, stop it. Stop premeditating your sin. Don't make provision for the sin in your life. Sometimes we do this over over a long period of time. We let a root of anger grow within us or a root of bitterness, and we let it fester within us, and we plot our revenge I'm, I'm angry at that person. I'm going to plot. I mean, I'm going to literally plot a way to get back at them. It's premeditating our sin, where we covet something that somebody else has. They're, they're doing better than me, so you know what? I am I'm just rubbing my hands. I'm like, I cannot wait to see them fall. I'm going to I'm not going to do it out, outside, but inside, I'm going to be celebrating when they stumble and fall. We're planning out our sin. Paul says, don't do it. When the day comes that this long nurtured sin gives birth to words or actions and it comes out in an ugly way, it's a predictable thing because we've been planning it. We've made provision for that sinful attitude to, to be there and to fester and then it comes out. And we go, well, yeah, pretty predictable because I've made provision for it. So we're all capable of this, folks. We're all in this together. Don't be caught by surprise. The degree to which you're surprised By how you sin is the degree to which you don't really know your own heart. I was caught by surprise on Thursday. That bothered me. It tells me something that I don't know enough about my own heart. Or that I'm asleep. I'm too drowsy. And I wasn't on alert. This is the way we need to walk through our days, guys. This is how we do it. So the key to winning the spiritual battle, whether it's that that sudden type of sin that comes on or this premeditated type, is to capture every thought. And do not let it sit there in your mind. Do not let it sit there in your mind or get down to your heart and rot and fester there. Take those harmful thoughts and give them to Christ right away. Don't play around with sin as if it won't burn you. So that's the negative command. Don't make provision for your sin. Don't leave an ounce of room or a moment of time for it to fester in your heart. Now the positive imperative, look again at verse 14, put on Jesus. That is, that is brilliant. Put on Jesus every day, every moment of every day, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This brings us back to Augustine. This is why we started here. Remember, he could hardly imagine his life. If he had to live up to this exacting standard of God's law, he didn't want it. I mean, how do you actually love your neighbor as much as you love yourself? That is not even possible. How do you live a life of purity when there's so much pleasure to be had? That is impossible to do is what he thought. And the fact is natural man doesn't want to live that way because his flesh finds no satisfaction. And natural man says, I could never live that way. That was the stumbling block for Augustine. But of course, we who are in Christ, we know that the Christian life can be lived, and it has been lived for centuries. Not perfectly, but faithfully, yes. Consistently, yes. Absolutely. And it was that final sentence here in Romans 13 that transformed Augustine's soul by putting to to rest his doubts that he could live the Christian life, a radical life. And it came down to this very statement, Put on Jesus Christ and become like him. If I become like him, I can live this life, is what Augustine reasoned. This is what God wants for us, right? Isn't this the the whole purpose of the years we have on the earth? That God would conform us to the image of his son? This is his will for all of us. And what a promise that is. What an encouragement that God is in the process of conforming us to the image of his son. All we have to do now is put on Jesus and allow the spirit to make us more like him. This means that weak people like me and self-centered people like me can live a life pleasing to God as we depend on him, as we look to him for the power to overcome temptation, as we look to him to walk in newness of life. Guys, John 15 verses 4 and 5 is so critical in this battle. You know this verse, abide in me and I in you. Jesus says. What does that mean exactly? It means pitch your tent right here with me. Make your dwelling with me every single day. I, I don't know if, you, if you're good at visualizing that, but have you ever thought about that when you wake up in the morning? Uh, man, I'm, I'm gonna pitch a tent for Jesus right here with me all day long, and we're gonna abide together. And I'm gonna depend upon him for strength and for power. The verse goes on, As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that which bears much fruit. And apart from me, nada, zip, zilch, zero, nothing, apart from Christ. What's the fastest way to not grow or mature in the Christian life? Try to do it all in your own strength. You want to be frustrated? Go for it. Go out there and live in your own strength, in your own fortitude. You're tough enough. You're man enough. Go live in strength. Just commit to not do things. It's a doomed strategy. You will fail and you will stumble and you will be weaker for it. Abide in the vine and you'll bear much fruit. It's really that simple. See, the Christian life isn't really rocket science. This is so encouraging. You don't have to be particularly smart or gifted to live a mature Christian life. You just have to put on Jesus and depend upon him moment by moment, trusting in his word, trusting in his promises, and walking with him by faith. That's the promise that we have. This is what Augustine discovered in that Glorious moment of blinding insight that Christ makes living the Christian life possible. He's already given you all the power and all the resources that you need to do it, to become who God declares that you are. Put Him on. Appropriate Him. Live with Him. So, O'Kill, the key word for this morning is urgency. The time, man, this, there's not enough time for us to, we'll have our little of time here at the end and Maybe we'll go out and grab lunch and then just forget everything we've heard today. Just forget the scriptures. There's no time for it. Urgency is the matter. Step back from the daily grind of your life. Recognize this era. See the big picture. The night is almost gone and the day is near. So be ready. And let's walk as we should with the urgency that we ought to have. First, what? To love our neighbor. That's the demand of the age. To love our neighbor. And second, to become who God has declared that we are. His children. We are his children. Sons and daughters. Sons and daughters of the light who have all the power that we need to live this Christian life. Friends, the victory is already won. It's not up for grabs. The only outstanding issue now lies with you and me. Will we trust God's word on this? Will we submit ourselves fully to the work that he wants to do in us? That's it. And you have that choice Today and tomorrow and the next day. Our salvation, Paul writes here, is nearer to us than when we first believed. Isn't that, isn't that cool? I don't know how long you've been a Christian. I think I'm coming up on my, like my 35th year. But salvation is nearer now than it ever has been. Now, I'm old. So it, it feels like it's right around the corner. Be encouraged in that. Be encouraged. If you're found in Christ, you've already been forgiven. You've already been cleansed. You've already been declared justified and righteous in God's sight. But there is so much more to come than this life on planet Earth. Salvation ultimately means this, being done with sin once and for all. Anybody looking forward to that? Being done with disease and discouragement and depression. Being done with having to just see things dimly. Salvation means being able to see Jesus face to face. Finally. Finally. And so with every day and with every groan of my body, I know I'm getting closer to the greatest moment that my heart can imagine. Being in the literal presence of Christ. So may we recognize the time and may we put on the Lord Jesus Christ today and every day until he calls us home. Amen? Pray with me.